On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Hello. We are your podcast of music discovery. Proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source of music podcasts. If you haven't had a chance to check out our spinoff podcast, Throughline, make sure you spend some time on that. Uh, the show aims to find the concept in every record, whether that be musical, lyrical, or otherwise, whether it was intentional or not intentional. And you can find that at Throughline dot audiojudo.com also i'm happy to announce and you guys probably don't even know this yet Ooh. the return of audio judo does jazz Ooh. after a bit of a hiatus uh chris will be returning with new episodes soon great and i'm not going to put a, more of a timeline on that that's probably Just a good idea soon uh and you'll be able to find those at audiojudo.com click on the audio judo does jazz link or anywhere that audio or anywhere that podcasts are podcast uh, if you're interested in hearing uh, more from us than these regular episodes, we also have a Patreon account. Uh, Kyle, what do they uh, get and how do they find it? Indeed. So we have three tiers currently on our Patreon account. Uh, the first tier is called Shout It Out Loud uh, for the moment. We might change that shortly, but it's only a buck a month. However, uh, it does get you, it does help you support us making this podcast for only a buck a month. And at the end of every episode, we're going to give you a shout out on the episode. If you want to help us out a little bit more, you can bump up to the front row seats tier. For just five bucks a month, you can really help us keep making the podcast and maybe supply us with a couple of beers along the way. For your money, you'll get a shout out by name at the end of every podcast episode, two-day early access to full episodes, access to bonus mini episodes called Judo Chops in between normal episode releases, and an occasional bonus bit such as unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes mostly due to flatulence. If you really want to help us out and get a little something for yourself in return, you can bump up to the backstage past here. It is $20 a month. That is one Jackson a month, Andrew, not Michael. And for that, you'll get a shout out by name at the end of every episode, two day early access to full episodes, access to the judo chop mini episodes, uh, the bonus bits of farts and burps, plus a very special personalized gift after three months at that tier. And after one year at that tier, you get to co-host an audio judo episode. Again, that is after one year and it only activates once. What if they could give a Michael Jackson instead of an Andrew Jackson? Oh, that would be cool. That'd be pretty cool, right? Right? We do appreciate all of our patrons. Um, it does help us make this episode, make these podcast episodes. We do it for fun uh, anyways, but having a little bit come in means we can buy equipment and pay for beers and right. you know keep making episodes so it's great 85 episodes we must be having some fun we might must be having a little bit cuz we're keeping going right 85 so Kyle you continue your foray into the eccentric choices as of late indeed the, the last two you chose were Harry Nilsson mm -hmm. and the Doobie Brothers. Indeed. And this week you have chosen what exactly? Badfinger's Magic Christian Music. So so, do you know? Did you did you know about Badfinger at all before this, Matthew? It's a band that I long just threw on the dust heap of Beatles wannabe bands. Yes, this is not only a band that I almost never listened to, but also an album I had zero familiarity with. Uh, this is going to be an education, and I'm cool going into it a bit apprehensively for that reason. In all honesty, the first track on this album, "Come and Get It." If you played that for me and told me it was a Beatles song, I would 100% believe you. Oh, there's going to be plenty of references. There. <laughs> 100%. I was wondering, am I going to hate it? Am I going to love it? Because I love the Beatles, and mm -hmm. it is so reminiscent of them. I will just love it because I love that sound. I don't know. This should be a fun exercise. Right? It, and in all honesty, Badfinger is one of those bands to me that I like them. I like listening to some of their music. Mm, their albums are a little not great as a whole. <laughs> 
<laughs> Are you talking about Badfinger? Yeah. You know, um, and they do really, and I know they were dogged by this, and they still are dogged by this. They do sound a lot like the Beatles. Well, I'm going to address this further, and cool. I think there was a very specific reason for it. Yeah, and we'll obviously circle um, back around to that. And just to get this part out of the way, cool. I don't know that we have talked about a band that has been, or that has had more of a uh, tragic history in yeah. the long run. Def Leppard comes close, hmm. but when all the dust settled, despite the tragedy, Def Leppard had tremendous success for yes. a long time, and their legacy is cemented in the history of rock and roll. Badfinger, it's unfortunately- It's a footnote. Not quite. Yeah. Yes. Badfinger is essentially a footnote, and I, I think that it's a shame because they do have some pretty good musical contributions. And like I said, their albums as a whole, maybe not so much, but a lot of the individual pieces- are pretty good songs. I want to be diplomatic here and say that their output was uneven. That's a good way to put it. Like, there are some sparklers in their catalog, but there's there's some stuff that you're like kind of want to casually look the other way. You want to talk about want to talk about their history? A Let's do bit? it. So they are actually a Welsh rock band. Uh they formed Svansi, right in Wales. 1961. Uh, they formed for members of the band the Panthers, uh, and they also went under name—excuse uh, me—they also went under other names uh, at various times, including the Black Velvets and the Wild Ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they settled on the name the Ivies after a street in Swansea called Ivy Place. Mm -hmm. The band at that point consisted of Pete Ham on lead guitar, Ronald Ron Griffiths on bass guitar, David Die Jenkins on rhythm guitar, and Roy Anderson on drums. Uh, in March 1965, Roy left the band and Mike Gibbons took over on drums. Uh, the group had somewhat consisted, consistent bookings playing uh, by themselves and opening for larger bands around London, and they performed a rather large range of music, mostly covers that included Motown hits, soul music, psychedelia, blues, and, <laughs> surprisingly enough, Beatles hits. Right? That's – see, okay, so I have very similar notes to you. That's new. The band's starting to play – Beatles songs as covers mm -hmm. is a new phenomenon right, right around this point. That, which is crazy to think about now, but you got to think 1965 Beatles have only been around for 10 or 12 years. Well, but popular for three or four. Yeah. And so the idea of covering the Beatles was a new thing at Very this time. New. Yeah. And so they began to garner some interest mm -hmm. from record labels. And they actually hired a manager in 65 called uh, a man named Bill Collins. Mm -hmm who moved the band into a house that he owned in Golders Green, London, along with another band called the Mojos. The house was very, very crowded, but it did have a recording room equipped with a two-track recorder. So when they had ideas, they could run in there and record them, which I think is kind of right. interesting. And, and in true 60s fashion, they signed that recording contract with Collins, a ridiculously top-heavy manager-friendly oh, yeah. contract that would continue to leak profits his way. For years to come, yeah, it, and that's it, just the way you did it. You totally, you totally sold out your artists and and just raked yeah. them over the coals to squeeze them for every cent you could get, while they did all the work. Yeah, and at the time it was twenty percent of their net going to Collins, <laughs> and at the time he said, "Quote, look, I can't promise you lads anything except blood, sweat, and tears." Uh huh. I have Which, that same quote in there. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah, but what is he going to do? Yeah, right? you're not doing any of that. No. So in 1967, they asked Di Jenkins to leave the group, and he was replaced by Tom Evans, formerly of the group Them Calderstones. Why did they ask him to leave the group? Well, Jenkins' departure was remembered by Griffiths as being, quote, politely asked if he would step down, as Jenkins seemed more interested in girls than in music. There it is. I don't see why you can't do both. Right? Why can't you do both those things? Gene Simmons did. Right? <laughs> why, why can't you be interested in the chicks? And the music. Right. Come on, bro. So in January 1968, Collins invited Beatles roadie slash assistant Mal Evans and Apple Records A&R head Peter Asher. No relation to Tom Evans, as he will come up. Indeed. Uh, to see the Ivies perform at the Marquee Club in London. Oh, Apple's A&R and McCartney best friend, Peter Asher. Yes. Mal Evans was so impressed uh, that he delivered demo tapes to each of the four Beatles and talked the band up enough that all four would eventually agree to sign the group to their new label, Apple Records. You do know that that took four and a half months of constant badgering yes. for them oh, to yeah. finally sign off. When I it. said eventually, I meant eventually. <laughs> they did, however, sign with Apple Records on July 23rd, 1968. They were the first 
non-Beatles recording artist on the label. Mm-hmm. They were released their first single, Maybe Tomorrow, on November 15, 1968. It reached a top 10 position in many European countries and Japan, but only number 67 in the US bill, uh, on the US Billboard Hot 100, and it didn't chart in the UK at all. Going back to that signing with Apple. Yeah. Each individual member of the Ivies was forced to sign a contract with Apple yes. for decisions that would haunt them financially for the rest of their careers and some for the rest of their very short lives. Yes. Like, very Apple weird. Apple was very uh, uh, litigious, let's yes. say. And so the song Maybe Tomorrow, mm-hmm. getting limited airplay, limited support from Apple. Yeah. And in an interview, Griffith said they, quote, kept submitting songs to Apple, and they kept sending them back to us, saying they weren't good enough. And uh, Sir Paul McCartney read that interview and decided to step in. Yeah. He offered them the song Come and Get It, a song he had written for a movie called The Magic Christian. Which, at this point, we have to do a quick aside also on starred, The Magic Christian. Also start Ringo Starr. Go ahead. Right? So what do you know about The Magic Christian, Matthew? Uh, other than the fact that it stars Ringo Starr, not a hell of a lot. I have seen this movie a couple of times. Are you fucking kidding me? It is a horrible well, that's good to hear. Magic Christian, it's a black comedy that has a list of star talent you won't believe. The leads are played by Peter Sellers and Ringo Starr. So immediately you're Already like- Already you're like, oh, oh, my whoa, God. whoa. Backing them up is an absolute who's who of British TV and stage comedy actors and a few Americans, including Isabel Jean's Carolyn Blankson, uh, who played Mon Mothma, uh, Spike Milligan, Richard Attenborough. Yes, Richard Attenborough from Jurassic Park. That Richard, spare no expense? Yep. Leonard Frey, John Cleese, Patrick Cargill, uh, Joan Benham, Ferdy Maine, Graham Stark, Lawrence Harvey, Dennis Patrice, uh, excuse me, Dennis Price, Wilford Hyde White, Christopher Lee, whoa, whoa, whoa. playing a vampire, Roman Polanski, future child molester. Whoa, wait, Sa- Saruman? Saruman, yep, Christopher Lee, it? and he plays a vampire. Roman Polanski, who doesn't play a child molester in the movie, but is in real Plays life. Plays one in real life. Raquel Welch, Victor Mattern, Terrence, fuck? Terrence Alexander, Peter Bayliss, Clive Dunn, Fred Emney, David Hutchinson, Hattie Jacques, Edward Underdown, Jeremy Lloyd, Peter Myers, Roland Culver, Michael Trabshaw, David Lodge, Peter Graves, not the biography Peter Graves. Peter Graves? Not the one you're thinking of. Oh. It's a different oh. one, but still uh, very famous in Britain. Robert Raglan, Frank Thornton, Michael Aspel, Michael Barrett, Harry Carpenter, John Snaggy, Alan uh, Lawrence, Yule Brenner, who is credited as a transvestite cabaret singer. Oh, in now I have to see this movie. John Lemissier, Guy Middleton, Nosher Powell, Rita Webb, uh, Jimmy Clitheroe, Sean Barry West, Kimberly Chung, who plays John Lennon. <laughs> I'm sorry, who, excuse me, Sean Barry and Kimberly Chung, who played John Lennon and Yoko Ono in the movie, George Cooper, Rosemary Hillcrest, and Edward Sinclair. While that list sounds what? like an amazing amount of talent, I have to say, don't bother watching this movie. Well, if the script is shit, then it's going to be shit. It's not very well put together. The comedic timing is often terrible. And it's super heavy handed with this message, which is capitalism bad. Must smash capitalism. <laughs> the the film's was, take uh, on Kyle's black humor. Godzilla yeah. Impersonation. It's my Frankenstein impression. Oh, okay. Capitalism bad. <laughs> it's the film's take on black humor is really over the top, and it concludes with a scene where a bunch of people are wallowing around in a vat of urine, animal animal manure, and animal blood, while a sl- uh, excuse me brought, bought from a slaughterhouse to get quote unquote free money while the song "Something in the Air" by Thunderclap Thunderclap Newman, Newman. Yeah, that's a great song. A uh, great song. Weird ending to this movie. It really... I can't believe is, that cast. The cast is amazing. It has two people from Monty Python. It was John Cleese. Like, why? John why? Cleese really early, too, in his career. And it is just... It is... With this cast, it should be amazing. This all being said, do go online and check out the scene with John Cleese at an auction house. Uh, excuse me. As an auction house attendant selling a Rembrandt. It's a very, very funny scene because... um uh, Ringo and uh, Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers, excuse me, I couldn't remember his name. Purchase a Rembrandt in order to cut its nose off, and then he's like, "Oh, we love collecting noses." And John Cleese's reaction is just amazing. There's also a scene which has Yule Brenner as a drag singing cabaret performer. 
Now you say you've seen this movie twice. Twice, Kyle. Because what I, what fueled the second watching of it? I watched it once, and when I was sixteen or seventeen, because you, I recognized all these names. Were you super high. I was not, surprisingly <laughs> enough. But the first time I watched it, I thought to myself, this is going to be amazing. It's all of these big names. Ringo Starr is in it. Peter Sellers is in it. John Cleese. This is going to be amazing. And I watched it in disbelief as the movie unfolded. And I was just like, this is so boring and stupid. And then about 10 years later, it came. It somehow came back into my my life. And I thought to myself, you know what? I was probably too young to get it. I was probably too young to understand it. I mean, this is going to be amazing. I should watch this again. And I watched it again, and it was even worse the second time. Is it like, uh, is it kind of like that Sean Connery in the uh, Toga? What the hell is that movie that you made me watch? Oh, uh, Zardos? Yes, that one. It's very similar, (laughs) yes, where on its surface, Zardos should be an amazing movie. Yeah, you made me watch that shit, and I'm like, God damn it, Kyle. You're welcome. Yeah. By the way, if you're out there, go watch Zardos. I came into that. I came into work that day, just like with a befuddled look on my face. Like I remember this, the, did I and you see? were like, "What just what happened last Why night? did I do this?" But uh, those two scenes uh, where they sell the Rembrandt and with Yul Brynner as a cabaret singer are both very funny scenes. Anywho, so anyways, McCartney offered the song "Come and Get It." Yeah, he was there in the recording sessions with them. Yeah, insisted that they play the song note for note oh, they, as he intended. They recorded it in one hour on August second, nineteen sixty nine. Right, they said they wanted to put their own spin on it, and he said, "No, do it this way because this is." The hit. His actual quote is, quote, they were a young band. They said, we want to do it a bit different. Want to get our own thing in it. I said, no, this has got to be exactly like this because this is the hit. This is the hit. Which if Paul McCartney says that, I think you got to listen well, to back Paul then, McCartney. He says back it. then. McCartney, now, maybe today. So McCartney had been commissioned to write two additional songs for the soundtrack to that movie. And he offered to produce two of the Ivy's original compositions to mm-hmm. fulfill that commitment. Which became uh, Carry On Till Tomorrow, which became the made title for the movie. Right. And Rock of All Ages. Oh, goddamn. Which is background music for a party scene. Oh, you just wait. So as the release date approached for Come and Get It, Apple Records and the band felt that the Ivies was too wimpy of a sounding name for the band, so they decided to change it. Many names were put forth, including Glass Onion, very famous John Lennon song, and the Cagneys. An Apple A&R guy, Neil Aspinall, suggested... Badfinger, a reference to the Badfinger Boogie, the original working title of the Lennon-McCartney song, with a little help from my friends. Everybody knows that song. Yeah. Uh, it was originally so named this because Lennon had hurt his finger while playing the piano and was only using one finger to play. Yeah. So However- that's straight up Lennon, man. In a much later interview, George Harrison did say that oh, the this- band was named after a stripper the Beatles knew in Hamburg named Helga Fabdinger. Right. I prefer that story. I like that story way better. But Helga Fabdinger. Helga Fabdinger. However, in recording uh, 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 Come and Get It and uh, uh, Carry On Till Tomorrow on Rock of Ages, re-recording those songs uh, for the Magic Christian, it sort of blossomed into a recording session for an entire album. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just started recording songs that they liked. However, during that, uh, Ron Griffiths left the band in October 1969. He was the only member who was married, and he had a young child at the time, and it created a lot of friction in yeah, the band. demands were just too much. Yeah. They were unable to find a suitable replacement bass player, so they hired Joey Mulland as a guitar player and shifted Tom Evans to bass. Because, you know, they're basically the same instrument, right? It's the same. So Come and Get It, <coughs> released in December 69, sold over a million copies, got to number yeah. seven on the Billboard Hot 100 and four, number four in the UK. And I think I said this before, if you played this for me and didn't tell me it wasn't the Beatles, I would not know this wasn't a Beatles song. No fucking clue. Uh, their first album had been released as the Ivies. Maybe Tomorrow had been released as the Ivies. Didn't do very well. It was shelved. So they put three the, the three songs they recorded for the Magic Christian movie together with some of the tracks from the Ivies album mm-hmm. to put, put together the album we're going to talk about today, the Magic Christian music. Yeah. The Magic Christian does, in fact, have a soundtrack, which also has uh, some incidental music by Ken Thorne on right. it. Right. This is not the this soundtrack not movie. This is not the soundtrack Or the soundtrack. Movie. Yeah. This is not the soundtrack album yeah. to the movie. However- One of the things that I thought about when listening to this album and then writing my notes, and now I want to think about while we're talking about this, is this an album or is it just a collection of songs? 
It's just a collection of songs, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's not necessarily a great album. However, I think that it holds a very weird, distinct historical point in the history of albums as it was a sort of first, not quite post-Beatles album that all the Beatles sort of had a finger in a little bit. Oh, I have I addressed this coming okay, up. Okay, cool. Well, yes. we'll come back to it then. Yes, because there there is that very specific thing. So the this album was released in January uh on January 8th, 1970, would peak at number 55 on the album chart in the US, and I'm not sure, entirely sure about the sales figures because I couldn't find anything. Uh so I don't know if you did, but I don't know how it sold. Um did it? I mean, it sold okay. Yeah. It was it was not great at the time. Right. Um Apple was doing a lot of weird shit at this time. No shit. So the soundtrack to the movie, The Magic Christian, came out. Would you say it was poorly managed? I would say it was poorly managed. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) The soundtrack came out, and in a very fitting twist to the themes of that movie, with the inclusion of the song, Something in the Air by Thunderclap Newman, it became impossible for Apple to sell it under their label because of capitalism. (laughs) This is such a weird story. I so, think, yeah, we're going to. It was released by Commonwealth United Records in the US and Pi in the UK, PYE. Uh, because of that, it had almost zero promotion from Apple. It had no promotion from anybody else, sold super poorly. Because of that, they ended up sort of taking these songs and putting them together to try to rebrand them as an album that it's became. A pretty fucked up story. Yeah. Like the whole Apple saga is is really, really messed up. Uh, I think what we're going to talk touch on a little bit yeah. through this episode, but it was mismanaged from the get go, oh, just horribly. Um, the original American LP release of this actually has a different order of tracks. It's missing the tracks Angelique and Give It a Try. Production credit on this goes to Tony Visconti, Mal Evans, and Paul McCartney, depending on the track. It did peak at number fifty five on the U.S. charts, so. <sighs> <sighs> Not horrible. I mean, I've never had a top 100 album, but- But have you released an album yet? I haven't released an See, album yet. That's, so, I think that's part of the problem. You haven't had a top 100 because you haven't released one yet. Why don't yeah. you go ahead and release one? Let's see where it goes. Then right. we can do a little compare contrast. But uh, it's definitely a, it's a mess. It really is a mess. It's a mess. However, I also think it's worth a listen. All right. You want to talk about this album artwork? Yeah, let's do it. This so is one fr- of the more unique album covers that I've seen in a while. Indeed. I, I'm not entirely sure what the design style is, but it's very cool and very 60s, 70s. Oh, yeah. I love this album cover. Right? Go ahead. Uh, the front cover, is a, it's a stylized image of a street. Uh, on the left is a white building with arches, um, some shuttered windows on the second story, and a tile roof. On the right, a giant rectangular building with a single archway. Inside in the arch are two people at a cafe-style table. In the middle of the street is a giant left hand that looks much more real than the rest of the image, a la Monty Python animations. Uh, Its pointer finger is pointing up to the sky. It has a nail driven through it. Above is the title Magic Christian Music by Badfinger. I love it. Right? The back is the same street, flipped, and now instead of a hand, the heads of all three uh, three of the four band members are in the middle of the street, Pete Ham, Tom Evans, and Mike Gibbons. Ron Griffiths had left the band before the cover was created, so his picture was not used. Design was done by David King, who did the cover for The Who Sellout, as mm-hmm. well as Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix. We have actually talked about this guy at length before on our episode about Best Last Albums, talking about Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. His original cover for that record is infamous because he decided to include 19 nude women on the cover. It was very controversial. Had pulled from out. the shelves. Hendrix even said it was too much. Uh, he also produced a photographic biography of Muhammad Ali called I Am King, which is excellent. If you have not seen it, you should see it. It is so good. But I love this cover, and I need to get it. I need to buy it. Something else I found out about David King, too. I'm going to buy it. Uh, he did a very deep study on the history of art and propaganda for the Russian Revolution. Yeah, a and lot of the following shit. Yeah, the Soviet propaganda machine. He developed this absolute fascination with the the doctoring of documents and photos pertaining to Leon Trotsky after the communists took over. In his lifetime, he collected over 250,000 pieces of Russian Revolution slash Soviet era art and propaganda. See, I saw that and I, I thought that was bullshit. Yeah. Because that's such a stupid number. Right? I When I saw that, I was like, that has to be a typo. Maybe 25,000. But not two hundred and fifty thousand. But it's true that that uh, a collection now resides at the Tate Modern Art Gallery in London. It is an absolutely 
monstrous collection. And without that collection, a lot of that Soviet era stuff would be lost to history. Think about that. A quarter million. A quarter of a million pieces. Of anything. Like, where are you storing that shit, warehouse? Also, he seems like a pretty good guy because he worked with political groups to produce works for the anti-apartheid movement, the National Union of Journalists, Rock Against Racism, and he designed the Red and Yellow Arrow logo for the Anti-Nazi League. Hey, we need that type of guy right right now. Uh, We need that logo to come back. We need a bunch of shit to come back. Fuck Nazis. We need a bunch of shit to come back. (laughs) This is a very recognizable cover, even if you have never seen it before. I think – well, even if you've never heard of Badfinger before, you've probably seen this picture before somewhere. Oh, one other thing. Yeah. Design is heavily influenced by the early artwork of Italian artist Giorgio Di Scirocco. I saw that. Uh, if you look at the works, uh, The Red Tower from 1913 or The Enigma of the Hour from 1911, you will absolutely see the influences here. Beautiful right. artist, beautiful work. Nice job, David King. Should we take a quick break and come back and uh, take a, let's take a break, break it down? Yeah. Sweet. Come and get it. Come and get it, Matthew. Start right off with the song that everyone will probably recognize from this album. It sounds so much like a Beatles song, like we've already said, I, with obvious reasons. I thought we'll this get- was the Beatles my whole life. Me too. Uh, here, here's a little sample. Tell us what you think. I've probably heard this song a couple hundred times oh, over yeah. the years, and there is no way I could have been convinced until right now that it is not the Beatles. <laughs> it's so clearly a song written by Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. There's absolutely no getting around those vocals, vocal lines, those melodies. Number seven in the States, number four in the UK. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that earlier. Lead vocals are performed by Tom Evans, but only after Sir Paul auditioned all four members of the group as singer. <laughs> Uh, he, and, uh, uh, Tom Evans also plays maracas on the track. And besides producing the song, Paul McCartney also plays some tambourine. Yeah. I was about to say, like you just said, written by Paul McCartney, produced by Paul McCartney, percussion by Paul McCartney, and played exactly like Paul McCartney wanted it. Surprisingly enough. Because it sounds like fucking Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney had something to do with this song. Hmm. No, I could not find a definitive list anywhere, Mm -hmm. um, of times this song has been used in the media. Oh. I feel like for commercials or something, I've heard the song a lot. That come and get it type thing. Hmm, I can see that. And it, it's not a bad song, but why would it be? It's essentially, at this moment, a Beatles cover band. Right. So it should be pretty good. And of course, technically, there's a Beatles version of this song that came out in 1996 on one of the uh, voluminous anthology yeah. versions. And Paul plays all of the instruments in that version <laughs> because... Of course Which, he does. Yeah, that's the demo that Paul used. That's actually the demo that Paul used to s- basically say, hey, follow this exact demo to play this version of the song. Wait, hold on. John's too high. George is coming in late. Ringo won't be here for a while. I'll just do fucking everything Why because not? I'm always here. So apparently Badfinger did record a version of this that was not quite to McCartney's standards. Uh, it has a slightly slower tempo. It's also in a slightly higher key. And they use uh, three-part harmonies uh, to sing in it. That version was eventually released on the 1996 Anthology 3 compilation album by Ian McDonald. I'd like that. Yeah. I want to hear three I'm sorry. Part I said harmony. that backwards. Oh. That version that was finally released was the, the Beatles version. Ah. Excuse me. Oh, that is out. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Badfinger version, I think, is on one of their compilations as well. But- uh, but like you said, this did very. The single of this did very well. It's number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. Yeah. Number six on the U.S. Cash Box Top 100. But why shouldn't it? Number four on the U.K. Singles Chart. Number four in Canada. Number five in Ireland. Number fourteen on Australia. Number one in New Zealand. I'm going to address this later, but 
it should have done as well as it did. (sighs) Weirdly, first non-Beatles substantial hit for Apple Records. And it also falls in that magic pop music length of only, uh, it's only two minutes and 23 seconds long. Yep. So weirdly, every track on this album under four minutes. Not every track. No, no, no. No, there's one that's Excuse almost me. five. Almost every track. Yeah, okay. All right, good. I read my line wrong. Ah. Sorry. Crimson? Crimson? Crimson Ship. Yeah. Co-written by Pete Hamm and Tom Evans. Uh, the song is thinly veiled narrative of Christianity and religion through the psychedelic dialect of the late 1960s what are you pop saying? music scene. Produced by Tony Visconti, mm-hmm. who would gain a lot of fame later as David Bowie's producer. And I'm pretty sure that this is the first time i heard this song and it just sounds very much like beatles 2.0 yeah i feel like the beatles knew that they would be able to capitalize on their very unique sound even if they weren't the ones making the sounds oh absolutely i mean they were relatively good businessmen when it came to their stuff not so much apple core and this just seems like a savvy move to try and make money after they packed it in as a band yeah it's not a bad song at all. It just sounds so much like the goddamn Beatles. And honestly, there are some really good lyrical moments on this song. If you can cut through all the fab fourness of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, my life was painting pictures out of tune. You came from nowhere in a song. It might have been the way I laughed. You made the jokes. Could only show me what was wrong. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. I have no idea what it means, but the lyrics are all right. And I feel like you... like. Like you mentioned, there's some allusions to Christianity in this song because of the name of the album, Yeah, uh, which, by the way, is pretty ironic. Christians will have you believe that there is no magic and that the guy upstairs that supposedly turned water into wine at a wedding reception isn't really doing magic at all. So I think it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think there is some Christian imagery in there. But I'm just saying, magic Christian is an oxymoron. Yes. And I, I I feel like that was the intention. I think that was the intention from the, the film as well. Because yes. in the film, without going too deeply into it, there's a boat that is called the Magic Christian. Okay. <laughs> and it serves as a very heavy-handed metaphor for religion and Christianity because they invite a whole bunch of people on board. Get who out are, of town. Who are modern celebrities that are all- I know, need to see this movie. Not strongly religious, but then they get on board the boat and they all find religion because they think the boat is sinking, they're all going to die, and they all start to swarm towards the idea of, oh, God will save us, God, you know, oh, if we're all going to die, God help us all. And then it turns out that it's all a giant illusion created by Peter Sellers and Ringo Starr. That tracks. It's, like I said, again, I cannot recommend you watch this movie. At the same time, maybe watch this Go movie. Go watch it. <laughs> I don't know. What else you got? Here's a little uh, clip of uh, what Crimson Ship sounds like. That's actually Tom Evans on bass and guitar on this track because Ron Griffiths was out sick. He has a super strong presence on both instruments here. Hmm? This song also absolutely reminds me of the band Klaatu, who oh, we did a, a yeah, judo did a chop, chop about that, yeah. a long time ago. But they're another sort of Beatles sound alike band. But uh, this song specifically reminds me of a couple of their songs. So uh, I actually enjoy this song quite a bit. I think it's one of my favorites on this album. All right. Dear Angie. Song written and sung by bass guitarist Ron Griffiths, and by the time this album was released, he had already left the band and been replaced. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a nice song, and I think the thing about it is the, the, the production and the harmonies are excellent. Whatever production techniques they are using and the vocal harmonies are what make this sound like a Beatles cover band. Yeah. Uh, there's this echoey quality to it, and the way that is mixed 
just sounds like that other Liverpool band. Yeah. There's no way around it. But it's a lovely little song to his lady telling her how much he misses her and he just wants to know how much he loves her. If yeah. she doesn't already know, I dig it. It's actually but pretty good. It's definitely, if you look at the lyrics, this is a song about how he loves his girlfriend, presumably named Angie, yeah. but he hasn't told her, I love you yet. That's that's oh, he's boy. building up to it. Can't he can't over, say it yeah. quite yet. It's that hump. Right? Here's a little clip. I've known you now for one whole year. There's something I've not told you, dear. Turn the blind I put too long. This letter proves that I've been almost has a little bit of a country feel to it, in my opinion. A little bit. I don't know yeah. what it is about it, but it just has a little bit of that country feel. Not a bad little love song, but uh, also not a real standout either. Not horrible. Uh, Fisherman? Another song written by Tom Evans, mm -hmm. and on the surface, just looking at the title of the song, could easily be another Christian reference, oh, The yeah. Fisher of Men. But reading the, the song lyrics, it's really just about an old fisherman right? who has a really great day. What, you thought there was something deeper here? No, it tells his story <laughs> from his wake up to catching the fish of his dreams. It's done very poetically, very well. As the morning turns to noon, he's content to sit and croon, and he lights his twisted pipe and settles down. Onward goes the time, and he tries new baited line. So he digs another worm up from the ground. Uh, that's just excellent. Right? Here's the little clip. Between the darkness and the light, as the stars fade out of sight, I can hear his shiny boots fall on the sand. With a basket at his side, and the morning full of pride, you can see him cast his line with skillful hands. So I love the little sound effects right there. That I love the backing percussion in this as well. Uh, I think they're maracas that kind of come in. Yeah. That are really great. I think that's excellent. And there's also some fun layered vocals in this song that really set it apart from a lot of other stuff on this album. I, weirdly, I don't think this song fits here. Um, it just doesn't <laughs> sound like it should fit on this album, but it, it's a it's a an interesting like little yeah. song, and I, I enjoy it a lot. And you know, we just said there probably wasn't any deeper meaning. It was just a fisherman. Eh, maybe there is a little bit deeper meaning to this. It's all about how a simple life can be rewarding. It's about uh, it might be a parable about how uh, living a pious religious life means you'll get into heaven at the end. Even if you can't conceive of how good heaven is, it'll still blow your mind. That's nice. Right? That's nice. And so what I had to do to get through this record was try to imagine- <laughs> Drink a, a lot. I was trying to imagine a world without the Beatles. Because had there been a world without the Beatles, Badfinger would have been the Beatles. Okay. It's a pretty song. I love the harpsichord type sounds. It's very creative. It's naturally produced very well because they have the full force of the yeah. Beatles behind them. But it's just a, it's actually just a lovely little song. Like, I, I enjoy it. It's good. It's yeah. good. Uh, Midnight Sun, another one written by Pete Ham. And this is another one of those songs that if, uh, you know, I know we're going to say this over and over again. If I told you this was written by the Beatles, you would 100% believe me without even questioning it. See, and this is the first time I really noticed the separation between the Beatles and Beth. Really? Yeah. So written by Pete Ham, like you mentioned, and what Pete Ham lacks in really great lyrics like Tom Evans has, he makes up for a musicality. Uh, this song's quick little blues number. It's a little kind of 50s R&B, which was the beginning of the Beatles. Uh, I like this song a lot. I think it's really smart. And I, I feel there is a separation here. It's not that this song doesn't sound like the Fab Four, because mm -hmm. it does, but it sounds like older Beatles. Okay. If there is such a thing at the time, it sounds like early Beatles. So it's greener, it's less experimental. And like their sound after like 66, it's like there's less lab work involved. It's more straight ahead. This would have been a great song to perform like live in the, in, in ha Hamburg when, okay. you know, where they were just kind of learning. That's, this sounds more kind of skiffle 
stuff for that late 50s, early 60s Beatles type stuff. To me, the guitar here sounds like it could be right off of a revolver. Oh, okay. Just like so, yeah, absolutely just pulled right. Like this could be like a, oh, we ended up not using this on revolver. And it's like a weird, you know, recording thing that came out on on a, you know, behind the scenes album or a demos album years later. Here's a, here's a little clip if you've never heard this song. Absolutely see what you're saying. Yeah. It's definitely the revolver style guitar with that skiffle beat from earlier in the 60s. Yeah. I do like, too, that this one, I'm pretty sure this is a song about somebody who's been out on tour and they're worried about their girlfriend or, or significant other cheating on them. I think that the title Midnight Sun might refer to traveling by plane. Mm. Which, you know, in the 60s was still kind of a new thing. Uh, you get jet lagged. So when you arrive somewhere expecting it to be midnight, it's actually still sunny outside. Ah, also, do you know about the gooseberry, Matthew? Uh, I've heard of a gooseberry. <laughs> a gooseberry is a fruit. Yeah, I'm hoping you're pronouncing this right. It's a type of ribase. Uh, it may be green, orange, red, purple, yellow, white, or black. And in Britain, some children are told that when they ask where babies come from, that they come from under the gooseberry bush. Oh, weird. In Victorian England, the flowers of the gooseberry plant, rep- excuse me, the gooseberry plant represented anticipation. Go- <laughs> <laughs> Come on, England. What's going on with right? the goose babies under gooseberry trees? Simon, I'm looking at you, Simon. Why don't you email me and let me know what right? the hell's going on with gooseberry bushes? Uh, also, apparently the term playing gooseberry has the same meaning uh, akin to the American saying third wheel. So like in a group of people, uh, oh, yeah. you know, if you're the third wheel, you're the odd person out. Sure, sure. I think that one actually fits really nicely in the context of this song. As someone might be cheating on their uh, the person singing, making them feel like the third wheel in a relationship. I like that so, description. Uh, yeah, I was like, Gooseberry, why did that? Why is that so prominent in this? And I fell down a well of information. So <laughs> beautiful and blue, Matthew. Another song written by Tom Evans. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. <laughs> it takes a lot of self control to not just say what I'm thinking mm. because there really isn't that much more to say than it sounds like a Beatles song through and through. Right. I mean, you can call this album influential. But if it is, it is for all the wrong reasons. It is yeah. only influential because of how much it sounds like an album by that band. Uh, there's no ground being broken here. There are very few chances being taken, if any. It just seems like a blatant attempt to rake in the profits of a sound-alike band. The song itself is meh. It's okay. The harmonies are great. You know, they should be. Playing is average and just needs to be. Yeah. Lyrically, Evans is definitely the stronger writer. Uh, it's clear that his suicide... Ooh, I just referenced the suicide. Mm. It's it's clear that his suicide many years later was not something that he just thought of. He most assuredly had thought of it before. Listen to the lyrics. She feels so unhappy. She no longer cares for life. Just has thoughts of ending all her strife. The world doesn't know her. It's so hard and cold and cruel. She wonders why she's she's such a fool. There's some projecting there going on. Oh, absolutely. It's pretty dark stuff. There's a funky psychedelic guitar moment uh, near the end of the song that I actually really love. And I do think that that sets them aside a little bit from the Beatles in this one. And uh, it sounds a little bit like this. So I know I said that sets them apart from the Beatles, but then when I listen to it right there, I'm like, nope, that's 
That's Octopus's well, Garden. <laughs> that's Yellow Submarine. Right? Uh, I'm sorry, Badfinger. Uh, <laughs> We're trying. We're trying. We're trying. Rock of all ages. Songs credited to all th- uh, three members of the band. The only one excluded was the now departed Griffiths. The song was produced by Paul McCartney, one of the three he produced for the record. Credited to all three, yes, but this very much sounds like a Pete Ham composition, mm-hmm. uh, as he tends to write the rockier of the songs. And it's not a bad song. It has some back-in-the-USSR vibes to it. And it is so amazing that you can hear McCartney right through the speakers. You just well, know that sound. He played piano on this. It, it, but he you, straight up played the piano on this. He's like, no, you can't do it. Get out of the way. Boop, 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 boop. But you hear it. <laughs> so recently I was talking to show consultant Chris and mm-hmm. host of Audio Judo Does Jazz about McCartney's output over the years and how much stuff he has produced after the 1970s that's crap. And I know this isn't a Beatles episode, but it might as well be. And he said something to the effect of spending all that creative juice in the 60s. But he also questioned if all the songs we think of as really great towards the end of the Beatles run were really that good to begin with. Hmm. There are some stinkers. Or are we just identifying the sound that he had at the time and the fact that no one else did it like he did it? Chris said that all of his solo albums have a bunch of junk on them, but there's one or two gems. And the gems of the early years became hits and songs we hear a, a thousand times. Now the gems just become quiet fan or you know fans for people that still want to buy the records. They're just like Ooh. individual things because so much of the shit after like 83, you know, the Ebony and Ivory. Yeah. Everything after that like can you can anyone out there name a Paul McCartney song after Ebony and Ivory that's popular? Hmm. That that's 1983. Isn't it a popular song? I mean, he has albums that sell okay because people go, Beatles, McCartney, must have, got it. And he sells his records and whatever, but he hasn't had a hit in 40 years. In 40 years. So you wonder, like, you start to listen to, like, there was such a defining, like, there was a seven-year period where I feel like everything he did turned to gold. It was just his magic. It was his magic period. Everything. And then you wonder where that goes. You know, where does it go? Did you just expend all of your melodies in like that seven year period and there's nothing left? It's just, it's just hard to fathom, you know? Yeah. Well, here's what Rock of All Ages sounds like. I'm still waiting to find out that Paul McCartney is going to have like a residency at the park. Why hasn't that happened yet? I don't know. I don't know. Then you're just going to have to put up with him. Oh, fuck that, man. Oh, excuse me, Matthew. Uh, I noticed hey, that, Matthew. I noticed hey. last night you called a camera shot oh. two seconds too early. Hey, could, could I you, be on your podcast? Could you never do that again, please, Matthew? <laughs> Matthew, I've been listening to your podcast and you say some very mean things about me, Paul McCartney. Yeah, well, after 83, you kind of suck big it's, balls, man. Big balls? <laughs> what are you talking about, mate? What, flowers in the dirt? You didn't love that? Didn't love no, that. it sucked it was a wonderful ass, song. man. It's about weirdly. This song was just used in the background of Rock of, or I'm sorry, of uh, Ma- the Magic Christian. So it's during a party scene, and it kind of plays in the background. Tracks uh, like a party scene yeah. song, yeah. I do get a uh, a lot of uh, Little Richard here, though. Ooh, right. Ooh, a little fifties R and B. Fifties R and B. All right, carry on till tomorrow. Another song co-penned by Ham and Evans. Mm-hmm. Became- sounds like a hold on. Sounds like a delicious. Afternoon snack. Sure. Ham and Evans. Ham and Evans. Like a steak Diane. Mm. Ham and Evans. I like it. It'd be good. This became the theme song to The Magic Christian, again produced by Paul McCartney. George Martin was brought in to provide the string arrangements for this song, and it is the longest song on the album at four minutes and 49 seconds. George Martin. Listen to those, uh, the lyrics, though. 
And when the heavy journey's done, I'll rest in my weary head, for the world and its colors will be mine. Though my life's too short for waiting, when I see the setting sun, then I know again that I must carry on. There's some fight in the good fight, but there's a big mental, mental struggle going on. Mm. Serious for these guys. Like, you could see the way they're writing. They're talking about short lives and all this stuff. Yeah. So I like the music to this one quite a bit. Uh, It has a pretty good Simon and Garfunkel vibe to it. Not a lot of Beatles influence on this song at all. And I would say that this is probably my favorite song on the record. All right. It's also the longest track, clocking in at almost five minutes, which is an eternity in songs of this style. Yeah. I did write on here that it feels like a step up in both songwriting skill and quality, and that it doesn't feel like a Beatles ripoff. It feels like something new. Right. And so you you did realize that this is not one of the songs that was on the Ivy's record. Yeah. Nor was it one of the songs that McCartney produced. Yeah. So I feel like this was the beginning of them trying to stretch out from that Beatles kind of shadow. Yeah. And what I what you start to realize is there's a lot of gifts here. There's a lot of talent here if it wasn't like if it wasn't being stifled by play the Beatles, the Beatles stuff. Just do it. Here's a little clip. One weird thing I think happened. I feel like this song influenced Metallica's Fade to Black. That sort of that guitar that that you just kind of heard sounds exactly like the guitar in Fade to Black. Intentionally or unintentionally? I don't know. But either way, I feel like it had some influence there. And I think that's a cool, you know, so many people were influenced by the Beatles. How many bands were influenced by Beatles soundalikes and Beatles acolytes? Good question. Who knows? Matthew, I'm in love. Are you? Well, no, but that's the next song. Another Uh, of the handful of songs that were included on the Ivy's first record, Maybe Tomorrow, mm -hmm. shows who their audience was. I wonder if this is a love song. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, yeah. Here's a little clip. Actually, really like this song. I think that it's very upbeat. It's positive. It's about being in love. There's some nice vocal harmonies. It's not bad. The guitar is fun. Uh, the lyrics, however, have a very sad meaning behind them when you look at them <laughs> through the the lens of history. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. But uh, uh, if you listen to it on its surface, though, upbeat, fun little uh, poppy song. I like it. Right. Uh, Walk out in the rain. Another song written by Ham. Mm, It's a fun little Spanish-flavored American Western love song. So clearly what the defining line is was for his gifts to really shine. Mm -hmm. Once they were not the Ivies anymore, I think he felt some freedom to write songs that didn't sound like the Beatles. Yeah. Because this is a step away as well. Kind of leans more into the Simon and Garfunkel uh, vibe with the acoustic-driven songs and the quieter sounding arrangements. Uh, I don't mind this song, but I think he ends up melody hunting a little bit again. You just can't seem to nail it down. But his lyrics are getting better. 
I'll walk out in the rain so that the clouds can hide my pain. That's pretty good visual. Nobody could tell if you're crying if you're walking in the rain. Ooh. That's good shit. I dig that. I like it. Here's a little clip. So I just live a life of hope. Pretending that I couldn't care. But if you find you cannot cope. Just call my name and I'll be there. If I could live my life again, I still relive those precious times. Although I know there would be pain, I'd feel so good while you were mine. Be mine. You can really get that Spanish influence in that clip there. I but, like it. Uh, it is. It's a fun love song, and it's uh, a little bit more mellow than uh, the previous one, but still good. Yeah. Angelique. You want to go to the third love song in a row? Written uh, by Tom Evans? Yeah. Not on the original US release. No clue why it was cut, but apparently it was. Uh, like I said, another love song, third one in a row, uh, directed at somebody named Angelique, who the singer doesn't think they will ever get a chance with. That bummer. Right? He's clearly trying to emulate John Lennon and the sound of his voice with this. Yeah. I don't know how much you, you have to say about this one, because, well, you know, I would just have to write a view about the Beatles. Right. At this point. I honestly don't have a whole lot to say about this one. <laughs> I think the highlight here is the fun guitar sounds Ooh. and the clavichord. Ooh, clavichord. Maybe. Yeah. I think it's a clavichord. I think it is. Uh, there's a part towards the end that hopefully I think is in this clip that I got. Yeah, what to say about this? Third love song in a row. It's not a bad love song. There it is. There's the song. Yeah, buried on this album. Uh, Knocking Down Our Home. Written by Tom, uh, Pete Ham for the Ivy's first record. Right. What a depressing song. Right. The more uh, you listen to this record, the more it sounds like he's trying to sound like Paul. Yeah. But then he doesn't. It's really weird. Yeah. Uh, Bill Collins on piano, the band's original manager. Bill is the father of actor Lewis Collins, famous for his role as Bodie on the British TV show The Professionals. Ooh, there's a saxophone in there. There is. It's not. It's not great. It's extraordinarily dated. <laughs> uh, like you know how some of the Beatles songs and some of these songs actually hold up over time and get to the point of timelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this isn't one of those. No, fair enough. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I heard the line. I heard the news today mm -hmm. in a song. Some other song. Who would have? Where have I heard that? that line before? I read the new. I heard the news today. Mm. Oh boy! Oh boy! Is right. Right. Come on! You just ripped it off a fucking Sergeant Pepper's <clears throat> song. Come on! This is an upbeat song about getting your house knocked down, uh, <sighs> presumably to build a freeway, and then being forced to move into public housing. Hey, what's the big deal? Uh, it sounds a little bit like this. She's cooked for 30 years 10,000 meals she's cooked But now her eyes are filled with tears It isn't bad Nobody cares They're knocking down This is another song. I don't see why this is even on this album. It's, it's just, well, it just it just falls apart. Yeah, you could have just ditched this one. It would have been fine. Uh, mm. 
give it a try. Another song credited to the whole band, including Rob Griff- Rob Griffiths. Mm-hmm. So it's an early composition for sure. And the band is cutting loose on this song, Kyle. Ooh. An upbeat number, and they're trying to show their rebellious side. Lyrically, give it a try and unchain your desire. Ooh. You'll never make love on your own. And after the love seed is sown, don't put out the fire. Kyle, Ooh. I think we found the bad finger fuck <gasps> song. The bad finger fuck song! It took us until song number 13 to get there, but I knew we would find it if we just kept trying. What is this song about, Matthew? Is it drugs? Is it love? Is it anal sex? I don't know. (laughs) It's a little unclear. I'm not sure. But I agree with you that it is absolutely a fuck song. Here's a little clip. You know what? It's an all right tune as far as Beatles songs go. Sure. It's no wonder they play this stuff on Beatles Series XM <laughs> because I can't tell the difference. And I just figure it's a song I've never heard by the Beatles from one of their zillion recordings that haven't seen the light of day yet. You're just yeah. like, oh, that must be from Anthology Volume 74. Like, okay. And then it turns out it's a bad finger song. Yeah. Maybe tomorrow, Matthew. Which is the title track from the album, Maybe Tomorrow. Final song in the record, title mm-hmm. track from the Ivy's first record. Thankfully, it's coming to an end at this point. It's really very predictable. Yeah. Tony Visconti added the strings and orchestral pieces to this song to make it uh, something a little different. Uh, the single was a flop in the US and the UK, but it went to number one in the Netherlands. Uh, uh, come on. Wherever, whoever you may be, let the light of your love shine through the window of my heart. Mm, mm-mm. Nope, no, 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 no. Not good for you? No, no. <laughs> Here's what it sounds like. <laughs> and so I'm living for a dream. Each lonely day spent looking for the sunshine. I'll make believe that I don't care. I'll tell my friends I love my life. And that's how they wrap up this album. Again, it is so hard. I think that Badfinger had so much more to give to music, and they were so hampered both by being under the Beatles label and being under the thumb of the Beatles and being told you need to sound like the Beatles to be successful. And then on top of that, this album, their first real put-together album, is so hampered by the idea of it's pieces from another album, it's pieces from the Magic Christian soundtrack, it's pieces from you know, the recording sessions that they just kind of threw together. And it becomes this mishmash, whether you can even call it an album, I don't know. I picked this one out of Badfinger's catalog, because I think a couple of their later albums are actually better as albums. But I picked this one because I think it's a great introduction that will hopefully draw some people in. If you're interested in the Beatles, if you're interested in this sort of time period of music in the late 60s and early 70s, give some Badfinger music a listen. Whether it's this album or not, up to you. Um, I say give it a listen. It's not super long. It's 40-something minutes. 41 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to extract? Are you going to extrapolate on this? I am a little bit. Yeah. You know, so like I said, this is, you know, it is their first album and it came out. And of course, after this, everything was peaches and cream for Badfinger. Everything went great for them after this and they lived happily ever after. Okay. No, wait. uh, I'm reviewing my notes. Actually, quite a lot of bad things happened to them uh, after this. In fact, so many bad things happened to them that I'm not going to cover all of them right now. I wrote all those notes and then realized I didn't want to continue this episode of the podcast for another hour. Well, I read them all. Right. So what I've done is combined all these notes into a judo chop. Uh, so if you want to know what happened to Badfinger after this album was released, we have a little judo chop about it. It'll be coming out the week 
after this episode drops. If you want it, you can go to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash audio judo, sign up for the $5 a month tier, and you'll get to hear uh, what happened to Badfinger after this. Right. I mean, as far as Badfinger records go, this is a pretty average Beatles record. Mm-hmm. Kyle, no more Beatles ripoffs. I can't do Fair it anymore. Fair enough. I have, I have dug... Uh, I've I've mined this mine for everything that I had in it. So good, good news, we're moving on after so, this. But if nothing else, this was an education into something I really don't want to listen to again. Sure. Uh, and fortunately for me, like really fortunately for me, the next album I have to do of yours is by another band that I really cannot stand and never have. What? Yes. There are songs. Their songs are pretty and catchy and everyone loves them and hell freezes over for them and they get back together and yeah you can check out any time you want but you can't ever leave but i fucking hate the eagles oh this is gonna be so great because guess what my least favorite song of all time is hotel california good for you which good we are choice. not covering in that episode but we will for sure so talk that about will it. be fun but i like the challenges you keep presenting me and it's all for the <laughs> listeners but seriously everyone sign up for our patreon so we can do some other albums but you will probably pick some albums that i don't like sure. such is the life of matthew music encourager right also if you want to get in touch with us and let us know what you thought about magic christian music the beatles Badfinger, or anything else we've talked about twitter is at uh, audio judo instagram is at audio underscore judo facebook.com forward slash audio judo or the best way to get a hold of us info at audio judo.com we do respond to those emails we get them on our phones on our computers it pops up in my car sometimes which sometimes, is really yeah. weird um but we will get in touch with you uh we will respond back to you uh, if you email us yeah so uh as always, thank you everybody for listening. Yeah, we uh, have albums coming up from The Eagles, yeah. Peter Gabriel, our annual trip down Toad the Wet Sprocket Lane, Yep, Dave Matthews Band, Soundgarden, and the Moody Blues. So oh, stay yeah. tuned, everyone. Season four is just around the corner. Until then, everybody, bye-bye. Take care. the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.